out of the way, but I won't be moving much. The next, the next guy will be, yeah. We have a great bunch of young people, don't we? Yeah. Yeah. They uh, they inspire me, and uh, and they're a lot of fun to be around. Um, I always want the youth to think in terms of two questions. Anytime that they hear God's words, or worship, or pray, or the experiences that they face in their life, I want them to ask themselves two questions. It's very simple. What did God say to me? And what am I going to do about it? Scripture teaches us that if you are one of God's children, He can and He does speak to you. And if we are abiding in Him, we'll hear His voice. And the second thing is, is that we will do something about it. The, que- the question isn't, will I do something about it? The question is, what will I do about it? Because we will do something about it. When we hear God's Word, it will either move us toward Him and toward His will, and we'll embrace His sovereignty, or we'll move away from Him and we'll embrace our own. And the question we face as we walk through life is really very simple. Is Jesus Lord or am I? And the way we respond to that question will answer the way that we look toward God. Is Jesus Lord or am I? In these verses that Jerry read earlier, I don't know if you caught that or not, but that was the whole book of Second John, 13 verses. So if you've never read a whole book of the Bible, you just did, okay? And it's, and it's an interesting book because uh, the, the, the writer was John, the same writer who wrote the Gospel of John, and he wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, which were shorter letters. Uh, pastor's been preaching on 1st on John, which is a little bit longer, and 3rd uh, and John's pretty short, too. Uh, John also wrote the book of Revelation. And uh, this book is interesting, 2nd John's interesting, because it's only 13 verses, and, and yet he felt compelled to write this short letter, almost like a text message, and send it out to the church. And uh, it reminds me a little bit of myself at the end of that verse where he says, I have a lot more to say, but I'd rather not say it with pen and ink, but face to face. And I I get on my phone sometimes and and say something to somebody, and then they respond back. And and you've had this happen before, too, where you realize right away they want to have a conversation with you. And, and I don't do that with text messaging. It's, it's yes and no, and it's short things, you know. And, and when I see somebody wants to have a conversation with me, I, then I either, you know, quit texting or I, or I pick up the phone and just call and talk to them. <laughs> it's a lot simpler. But in these verses, John wrote this uh, short book, and he's dealing with, primarily dealing with a heresy that is creeping into the church. And in his treatment of this heresy, he uses certain vocabulary to express a truth that I think is one of the primary reasons that the church in America today is struggling for survival. He majors on two main themes or attributes, and that is truth and love. But there's really an underlying point that's being implied in these verses that I believe the average Christian misses most of the time, and it's in the word abiding. 
And not understanding abiding will cause us to misunderstand the truth and love that John is talking about. He's talking about truth and love in relation to the problem that the church is facing. And so we're going to look at the problem, and then we're going to look at how truth and love relate to it, and then how to make truth and love the dominant attributes of our life. So the problem at hand in this letter is what was called or what was known as Gnosticism. It was the Gnostic heresy. And Gnosticism said that Jesus or God didn't really come in the flesh, as you heard in those verses. Gnosticism was built on a Greek philosophy that taught that matter was evil and that spirit was good. And so as a result, you and I who are made up of matter and everything in the earth that is made up of matter was considered evil and God was good. And so Christian Gnostics, because, because Gnosticism or because Christianity invaded all realms of the world and everybody seemed to carry their own baggage into it. Gnostic Christians said that since matter was evil and God was good, that God could not really incarnate a human body. He only appeared in human form and only appeared to suffer. It was an illusion. The Gnostics taught a false philosophy which denied the sufficiency and the supremacy and the greatness of Jesus Christ. Paul wrote in uh, Colossians, For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. And when he wrote that, it was a rebuke against the Gnostics. A lot of the letters that we read in the New Testament dealt with Gnosticism in some way. Usually somewhere in that letter, uh, if you knew what you were reading, you'd see it in there. In this text, in verse 9, where John writes, Everyone who goes on ahead. He's talking about the way that man can and does go beyond the scripture in an attempt to understand truth that can only be understood understood spiritually. Human logic always ends in error when it goes beyond what the scripture teaches. If you want to know more about Gnosticism, Google it. I found a lot of stuff. There's just tons of stuff out there. So why is this important to us? Because if Jesus didn't really come in the flesh as a man, then he doesn't qualify to suffer and consequently sympathize with our weakness because he wasn't one of us. If he wasn't real, but just an illusion, then he couldn't shed real blood. And that's kind of important because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. So if you're wondering about what this letter was about and this that John wrote. It's, it's primarily Gnosticism. But as it applies to us today, it's any type of error in the handling of Scripture and the foundational teachings of who Jesus is. It's the same as the Judaizers that Paul was dealing with in Galatians when he wrote, You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace because they were relying on something besides Jesus Christ for their salvation. If you take Jesus off the throne, then you have to replace him with something else. And that something else is usually human effort or works. And ultimately, that means that you're responsible for your own salvation. And I don't know about you, but for me, that takes the good out of good news. It's why Paul challenged Timothy, present yourself to God as one approved, 
a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. So let's talk about truth first. Five times in the first four verses, John uses the word truth. And if you added the reference later in the chapter to where he talks about the teaching of Christ, it's eight times in the first ten verses. Now what we're talking about here is biblical truth, not common truth. Common truth is the things that we know. Two plus two is four. Lisa Dean makes great pheasant soup. And, and Al Waddles is a better golfer than Leo. I don't, I don't know if that's true. I, I actually was in a, uh, Leo's garage the other day where he keeps his golf cart, and I saw his scorecard, and I'm not sure anybody's as good a golfer as Leo. <laughs> Biblical truth is understanding what God is saying beyond what the words appear to be saying to the natural man. It is impossible for the natural or carnal man to understand spiritual truth. In Corinthians, Paul says, the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God because they are foolishness to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually understood. It's not just hard for the natural man, it's impossible. The only thing that allows us to teach accurately and understand spiritual truth is the Holy Spirit. And whenever we understand spiritual truth, it is evidence of the Holy Spirit in us. When Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to Peter, Simon, son of John, Blessed are you, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And when John the Baptist's disciples asked him if he was concerned that everybody was going over to Jesus, John replied, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. For truth to be understood by us, we have to have something outside of natural man injected or poured into man so that we can understand what God is saying. And that something is the Holy Spirit. Peter didn't get that revelation on his own. And neither did you, if you're a believer. Jesus said in John 16, 13, When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. Whenever the Spirit speaks, He's repeating what Jesus is saying to you. Biblical truth is the revelation of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Peter said that His divine power, Jesus, His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. Some people say, well, I thought the Bible was the truth. It is, because the Word of God is Jesus. God's revelation of His Son is what Scripture is. Truth is not defined by the Supreme Court, or by the President, or the Congress, or by Dr. Phil, or by Oprah, or any other educated fool 
that the television set wants to put out there and parade across the screen like they're the new Messiah. All that is is the best attempt at wisdom from a people who don't understand what truth is and who don't possess the spirit to know what truth is. And Scripture has a word for that. They calls it, scripture calls it the wisdom of fools. Jesus said in Matthew, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Spiritual truth is spiritually understood. If you struggle understanding spiritual truth, then hang on, because I'm going to get there as we go through these verses. And I'll give you some truth about it in a moment. Well, I want to look at love now. It seems to be a big deal to John. Again, love is the other word that he uses in this chapter, and he repeats it several times. Truth and love, truth and love, truth and love. Now understand, I'm not talking about the natural human ability to care for another person. We all possess that kind of love in varying forms. And we possessed it even before we ever knew Jesus. That type of love has man as the recipient and man as the provider. And unbelievers love this way. And even if they do it completely unselfishly, the glory and praise usually goes to man. But the love of God, which is what John's referring to here, is a different kind of love. The love of God doesn't come from man, but from God, and it flows out of us, out of us, through the Holy Spirit that he has planted in us. And the outcome is different because love that flows through the Holy Spirit always gives glory to Jesus. Jesus said about the Holy Spirit, he will glorify me for he will take from what is mine and declare it to you. In 1 John, he talks about perfect love that casts out fear. Perfect love is God's love. Would you agree with me that perfect love is pretty hard to do? You know how the Proverbs 31 wife is an example that's really not attainable for the average woman? How many of you women have read that chapter? Kind of ticks you off, don't it? Yeah. Yeah. I don't I don't think she's real. Except for Lisa. Yeah. I'll have to make up some ground later on that. <laughs> or how God's Word says, Be holy, for I am holy. Now how am I supposed to be holy like God is holy? It's humanly impossible. Or this verse, you heard, uh, you heard Tyler say that he memorized a verse at Super Summer, or several verses at Super Summer. This is, this is what he was memorizing. Love is patient and kind. Love's, love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does, not, it does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That's love that can only come from God. And it's really not attainable for us, apart from the Holy Spirit. And yet we lay that, we just, we just pile that right on top of every person that stands up here and gets married every time. And uh, 
They'll get it. One day they'll get it. But it's love that comes from the Holy Spirit. You can't do it without Him. When you were called and set apart by God, you received the power and presence of the Holy Spirit as the seal of God that signified that you are His. Every person that has been called and set apart by God has the Holy Spirit. Last week when Pastor preached on our birth and adoption and the ingrafting into the family, I thought he did a fantastic job of explaining it in a way that I'd never seen before when he talked about how how we didn't just receive adoption into the family of God, but God planted his seed in us. That through the Holy Spirit, we received his DNA. And that, and that Holy Spirit tells us that we are God's children. The new birth is a spiritual birth. Jesus told Nicodemus, unless a person is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said, I don't get it. And Jesus said, it's a spiritual birth. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And Nicodemus said, I still don't get it. But you know, eventually he got it. Because when we get to the end of the story, it was Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea that asked for the body of Jesus and took it off the cross and put it in a tomb. Listen, this part is critical for you to walk away with today. John says in these verses, the truth abides in us. Everyone who goes on ahead does not abide in the teaching of Christ. Everyone who abides in the teaching of Christ has both the Father and the Son. So listen carefully to what I'm about to say. We always talk about the doing part as if it's the same as abiding in Christ. If I obey the commandments, if I read my Bible, if I pray faithfully, if I love others, if I come to church on Sunday then I'm abiding in Christ, right? No. That's just external things that, that you, could, you can fake that stuff. You cannot judge your relationship with Jesus by external evidence. You can fool yourself and you can fool others and even think that you're fooling God. Abide doesn't mean doing something. Abide, as the Greek word in this passage, means to remain to stay with, to dwell. So how do we do that? We do it through the Holy Spirit that dwells in us. That's our connection to Jesus. That's, that's how we hear his voice when he speaks to us. That's how we know him. That's how we sense his presence. That's where we get our confidence that our salvation is secure. John says, and by this we know that he abides in us. By this we know that he abides in us. That he has given us his spirit. It says nothing there about works. Nothing about what we do. This is how we know that he abides in us. By the spirit that he has given us. The sad thing is, is that I think many times 
people who possess the Holy Spirit are not filled with the Holy Spirit. And I'm not talking about some weird ecstatic experience. I'm just talking about being filled with the Spirit, abiding in Christ, so that He controls every aspect of your life. That's being filled with the Spirit. And Paul said it too. He said, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are God's children. That's how we know. If you're not tapping into His Spirit, then you're going to have a lot of doubts and a lot of struggles. Doubts because you'll never be certain that you're His. And struggles because without the Holy Spirit, the best you can expect is only what you can produce in your own strength. We have to understand this to go on with Jesus. It's a cause and effect thing, and we usually get it backwards. All right? We don't get Jesus the effect. We don't get Jesus because we do good works, the cause. That, that's nothing but works Christianity. That's Christian Judaism. That's exactly what the law was about. You do good works because you got Jesus. Do you see the difference? Our problem isn't that, isn't that we're not doing good things or that we're doing bad things. You can, you, can, you can solve those problems with human effort. Our problem is that we don't abide in Christ. And we don't abide in Christ because we don't want to. I mean, let's face it. We're Americans. We're rebellious hard-working pleasure seekers. We do what we want to do. We work for what we want to work for. And we get what we want. And if we're not pursuing Jesus with all our heart, it's because we don't value Him enough to pursue Him. Can I just be that honest with you? That's the truth. When you abide in something, you pursue it. And if you really believe it's the most important thing, you pursue it first. Think for a moment. How much time do you spend each day in front of a screen? How much time do you spend each day on your hobby? Or worrying about your financial future and security? How much time do you spend pursuing a romance? How much time do you spend pursuing Jesus in prayer, meditating on His Word, worship, now tell me, what's really most important in your life? Giving Him your full and undivided attention is abiding. Now listen, I'm not condemning you for having a hobby or other interests because I, I have plenty of my own. But I've had to find a way, and we all have to find a way, to put Jesus ahead of them. And I, for one, have given him permission and asked him to kindly wreck my life if I ever put him second. I would rather struggle through pain than to not have Jesus active and alive in my life. I've, I've experienced both sides of the coin. I don't 
I don't want that. And I know it'll hurt. But uh, it's kind of what Jesus was talking about when he said it's better for someone to enter heaven with one arm or one eye. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Sounds pretty extreme. But it's better to do that than to enter hell whole. Okay? I've got a group of friends that I hang out with. Most, most of them that I've known for 15, 20, 25 years. And we do all kinds of stuff together. They're great guys. And I'd love for you to know them. They're just, they're just great guys. And you've got friends like that too. And do you introduce them to other people? Sure you do. Why is it so hard for us to do that with Jesus? Why do we treat him like he's some imaginary friend when we're out in public? I've decided that I'm not doing that anymore. I decided a while back that I'm not doing that anymore. I, I, don't, I stopped thinking anymore about what people think of me. <laughs> I, go, I go to the store, the lumber company, and, and, and if, if the conversation goes that direction, then Jesus just becomes part of the conversation. That's, it's just the way I talk now, and I, and, I, and, I, and I don't even think about it. It's second nature. A little awkward at first, but I decided that if he's really real, if I really believe he is who he says he is, then why wouldn't I talk about him just like I'd talk about anybody else? I believe he is. And I'm through acting ashamed of the one who gave his life for me. You know, it's almost, it's, I'm, almost uh, I'm almost angry about it. You know, <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't talk like an angry Christian out there, but, but the, the attitude inside is, I don't care what you think about me. Just deal with it. When John first met Jesus, the first words that Jesus spoke to him was, what do you seek? I thought that was interesting. Most people believe that John was originally one of John the Baptist's disciples. And when John the Baptist pointed at Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, it says that the two disciples that were with him followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following him, and he said, What do you seek? And most people think that John was a teenager. He was the youngest of all the, all the, all the apostles. <clears throat> And when he told him what he was looking for, Jesus said, come and see. And the verse goes on to say, he came and saw. And 60 some odd years later, this old man, who may have been the only apostle left, all the other ones had been killed. And this old man looks back on his life, and they think that he was thinking about when he was a teenager. And he wrote his gospel account of his experience with Jesus. And he said this, The Word became flesh 
and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For the law was given through Moses. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So what do you seek? Would you bow your heads with me?